Welcome to ACE Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in as we elevate clinical endocrinology by taking deep dives into trends and topics that can help us improve our patient care and global health. Find the latest episodes on aace.com slash podcasts. And now let's meet the endocrine experts who will be talking with us today. Hello and welcome everyone to our podcast. We thank the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology for making this possible. I'm Vijay Shivaswamy, an adult endocrinologist at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and I'm joined by Dr. Cyrus D'Souza, who's the Chief of Endocrinology at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. We will be discussing the effects of the type 2 diabetes medications on cardiovascular risk reduction, including MACE, heart failure, and renal disease. Welcome, Dr. D'Souza. Thank you, Dr. Shivaswamy. It's a pleasure to join you on this podcast and I am uh, anticipating a discussion. I would like to start this conversation by assessing the current burden of cardiovascular disease in patients with type 2 diabetes. Yes, this is a problem that has been known for a long time in type 2 diabetes. We do know that cardiovascular disease or events is likely to be between two and five times more prevalent in patients with diabetes than patients without diabetes. Also, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in type 2 diabetes. We have had a lot of medications that would mitigate the risk of cardiovascular events, such as statins and other antihypertensive medications, which have been shown to lower cardiovascular risk in diabetes. However, the residual risk is still very large in patients with diabetes, even after lowering the risk for these medications. So there is ample room for us to prescribe medications that would lower this risk in addition to glycemic control. Excellent point. Now, as you know, there has been a tremendous expansion in our knowledge of the effects of various type 2 diabetes medications on cardiovascular disease since about 2008. Would you please explain to the audience the reason behind this massive influx of data? So this is an interesting point historically. In 2007, there was a retrospective study published in NGM that looked at Avandia, which is a thiazolidine dione, and showed that there may be an increased risk a substantial increase in risk for cardiovascular events in those patients with diabetes. So in response to that, the FDA requirement was introduced in 2008 at first to show that diabetes drugs are safe in terms of cardiovascular disease. So in, in essence, to prove non-inferiority in terms of cardiovascular disease. So the guidance was that they had to be during phase two and phase three trials, enough cardiovascular events to be able to judge the, at the confidence interval of a two-sided confidence interval, the upper limit of which should not exceed 1.8 and preferably should be below 1.3. And in case that was not possible, 
a major phase four trial needed to be done called the cardiovascular outcomes trial to prove that the upper bound was below 1.3. And the guidance was that there should be a composite endpoint, primary endpoint called MACE, which is now very popular, which is major adverse cardiovascular events, which consisted of non-fatal stroke, non-fatal MI, and cardiovascular death. This was a usual three-point maze, as we call it. And hence, we have seen an explosion of these trials due to all these new drugs that have come out. And it has probably increased our knowledge a lot in terms of how these drugs modulate cardiovascular disease and diabetes. Yeah, that's a great segue to our next topic. I would like to first focus on SGLT2 inhibitors. Could you please break down the effect of SGLT2 inhibitors on cardiovascular disease and heart failure? And also explain, are all SGLT2 inhibitors the same when it comes to reducing risk of cardiovascular disease and heart failure? And what are the potential mechanisms behind these effects, which are seemingly independent of glycemic control? This is actually a vast topic, and so I'm going to be brief, but the new class of drugs, SGLT2 inhibitors, was invented as initially uh, an antihypertensive medication, but also has rooted glycemic control and other effects in terms of reducing risk for cardiovascular disease. So there have been many trials, uh, depending on which drug you look at, for example, there was the EMPOREC trial for empaglifosin. There was the CANVAS trial for canaglifosin. There was the DECLARE TIMI 58 trial for dapaglifosin and the VIRTUS trial for ERTAGLIFOSIN. These are the four SGLT2 inhibitors that have had cardiovascular outcomes trial. There have been some differences in the results which may result in some apprehension as to if these are class effects of these drugs or are these individual effects on cardiovascular disease. For example, the EMPAREC trial showed uh, a you know, greater than 30% reduction in cardiovascular death, while the other trials did not. In terms of the three-point means, if you look at them, the effect is very modest between 10 and 15% reduction. And if you look at cardiovascular disease individually, for example, MI or non-fatal stroke, they do not seem to have that much effect on those parameters. The major effect of these drugs is really on heart failure. So hospitalization, uh, decrease in hospitalization for heart failure in all of these trials is anywhere between 30 and 36%, very consistent. So what we can definitely say is that SGLT2 inhibitors have a potent effect on heart failure across the board, and that does seem to be a class effect. Whether arteriosclerotic vascular disease is affected in any way 
is still debatable. The, these different outcomes that are seen in different trials could be likely due to population differences. For example, the population of people in Iraq that had pre-existing cardiovascular events is much higher than in declared Timothy state. Thus, you know, we may not be able to compare them head to head given the different trial differences. As to the mechanisms that are involved, uh, there are lots of mechanisms that are possible. Some are observed in humans and some are observed or studied in animal studies. For example, there is a definite decrease in mean uh, blood pressure. So that could be a definite positive for cardiovascular risk decrease. There is significant weight loss, not too much, maybe two to three kgs, but still there's a weight loss. There is a definite decrease in cardiac preload due to the diuretic effect. So that also can affect cardiac remodeling. There is natriuresis, and that can also improve cardiac function. Some other mechanisms have been studied in animals. For example, a decrease in the epicardial fat and the inflammation around the epicardial fat. There is usually a ketonemia in people who are treated as GLT-2, and some experts have proposed that ketones are a superfuel which might have the cardiac muscle more easily use ketones rather than other sources of fuel. And then there has been a decrease in cardiac fibrosis in animals, which improves cardiac remodeling. There's also been a sodium inhibition of the sodium pump in the cardiac muscles that could make it more responsive to natriuretic medications. So as you can see, there's a lot of different mechanisms that could cause decrease in cardiovascular events in uh, SGLT2 inhibitors. Uh, that was an excellent explanation. Moving on to another exciting class of uh, medications, what are the outcomes? of GLP-1 receptor agonists on reducing risk of cardiovascular disease in large randomized controlled trials and some of their potential mechanisms behind their effects. So GLP-1 agonists are a new class of drug that are clinically used a lot nowadays and are very good at glycemic control, but they also have been observed to have cardiovascular benefits. There have been several large CBOTs or cardiovascular outcomes trials. The first of them was the LEADER study, which is a slightly shorter acting once daily GLP-1 agonist. In that trial, there was between 11 and 14% reduction in uh, the MACE, the primary outcome. And followed by sustained 6 which was semaglutide, which is a once-weekly insulin. And then there is the ELIXA trial, which was for lixisanatide, which is a much shorter-acting, like 12 hours GLP-1 agonist. The Excel study, which is the long-acting 
exanatide once weekly study for cardiovascular outcomes and the rewind study for dilaglutide. Most of these studies, they have different population. For example, leader had populations with high risk cardiovascular risk, but no cardiovascular events, and some patients with cardiovascular events. So um, other trials may have had lesser or more proportions of people with actual cardiovascular events. The time periods of these observations were also very different for all the way from two years to six years. And therefore, some of the results are a little different. Leader sustained, which is the liraglutide, the semaglutide, the XL trial, which is the bajorian, all had prominent beneficial effects in the primary outcomes. Elixir, for example, did not show any major differences in terms of cardiovascular protection. It's thought that it is because it's a shorter acting GLP-1 agonist. The difference in mechanisms than HGLD-2 are that it has a modest effect on lowering blood pressure, mean blood pressure, but a more powerful effect in terms of weight loss. So the weight loss can be quite significant, you know, varying from 5 to 15 kgs. GLB-1s in animal models have also been shown to have direct effects on the vasculature, improves endothelial function, decreases inflammation. So all of these mechanisms point towards more of a reduction in atherosclerotic disease rather than heart failure in comparison to SGLT2. These drugs do not show any benefit in heart failure. Uh, but they do show benefits in reducing MIs and strokes and cardiovascular death. I would like to pivot back to the SGLT2 inhibitors and their effect on uh, renal disease progression. So based on the randomized controlled trials, what effects do we know of the SGLT2 inhibitors on renal disease progression and what might be some of the potential mechanisms involved? Interestingly, as they were doing the cardiovascular outcomes trials for SGLT2 inhibitors, they did notice in the secondary analysis that there was improvements in uh, renal function, or in other words, uh, reduction in the progression of renal disease. And so there were a new set of studies done specifically looking at progression of renal disease. There are a variety of endpoints that are looked at. For example, doubling of creatinine, a 40% reduction in GFR, progression to end-stage renal disease, and a sort of composite of all these different uh, outcomes. So the first trial was the Credence trial, and that was cannabiphodin, and that showed a remarkable reduction, a remarkable reduction in 
the progression of renal disease and progression to end-stage renal disease. It is more marked in patients who have macroalbuminuria of more than 300 or a GFR of less than 45. So all of these studies are pretty uniform in showing this particular outcome. For dapoglyphosin, it was dapoCKD, and for empoglyphosin, it was empoGD. At least these three show that there seems to be a uniform class effect in terms of reducing the progression of renal disease or improving renal function. To note clinically is that initially there will be a reduction in uh, a GFR, but over time, this will recover and will cross the placebo line so that the GFR at the end of the study is always better than placebo. Regards the mechanism, the renal mechanism of SGLT2, as we all know, they inhibit the SGLT2 protein in the proximal tubule, which leads to an increased presentation or sodium load at the macula densa, which the macula densa in turn then causes an afferent arterial constriction of the glomerulus. As you might note, ACE inhibitors cause a relaxation of the efferent arterial constriction, lowering the glomerular pressure. While these drugs, they constrict the afferent arteriole, also causing lower glomerular pressure. So they may actually complement each other. But because of this reduction, there is an initial decrease in GFR, but long-term there's less damage to the glomerulus and therefore there's preservation of renal function. This is thought to be one of the main mechanisms in terms of renal protection due to SGLT2 inhibitor treatments. Thank you. Now, beyond SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1s, do we know of other diabetes medications that exhibit superiority or non-inferiority when it comes to reducing cardiovascular disease in patients with uh, type 2 diabetes? Yes, in, in, this is very interesting because we focus a lot on SGLT2 and GLP-1s, but there are other drugs that also have been shown to be beneficial cardiovascularly in terms of, in addition to their glycemic control. For example, Pyoglitazone has been shown in a couple of trials to reduce cardiovascular events as much as 24%. The downside is that you do have some weight gain, which most people do not want in a patient with a type 2 diabetes. And they can also induce edema and worsen heart failure. So there is a balance in terms of cardiovascular risk reduction. Bromocryptine is not often used, but it has been shown to actually decrease cardiovascular events. The drug acarbose, which is a glucosidase inhibitor, also has been shown to decrease cardiovascular events. 
is not very well tolerated, so not used as often. The drug insulin we use all the time. There have been two trials, the origin trial with insulin glargine and the devote trial, which is insulin diglutec versus glargine. Both of them show that although there is no protection from cardiovascular disease, there is no increase in cardiovascular disease. In other words, they are neutral in terms of cardiovascular protection. The other one that is neutral is DPP-4 inhibitors. So there have been a series of out CBOT outcomes trials for DPP-4 inhibitors. All of them have not shown any uh, benefit or harm in terms of cardiovascular risk. Lastly, but importantly, sulfonylureas, there was always this perception that sulfonylureas may be harmful for cardiovascular disease. However, recently in the Carolina trial, a DP4 inhibitor was compared to sulfonylurea and it showed that sulfonylureas are pretty safe in terms of cardiovascular disease. At least then they are neutral. They do not increase cardiovascular events. Although their major problem is hypoglycemia. Finally, now that we have all of this knowledge from a variety of the randomized controlled trials, how do we use that in clinical scenarios? Are there any patient-specific factors that drive the use of these medication classes that we've discussed so far? Yes, it is very interesting to try and select the correct drug for the correct patient, since these trials have so many different types of outcomes. But broadly, if you look at SGLT2, they are very beneficial for patients who have heart failure, for example, or who have renal disease with microalbumin of more than 300. So for those patients, it might be very advisable to use an SGLT2 inhibitor. GLP-1 agonists, on the other hand, may be better for those who have more of a cardiovascular, arteriosclerotic disease, but also require a larger reduction in A1C and a substantial loss in weight loss. So if you desire a weight loss, those might be the drugs that you would use. And they also reduce the amount of insulin you might be using in a patient. In terms of renal impairment, for example, DPP-4 inhibitors, most have to have renal adjustments, except for linagliptin, which does not need any adjustments. So if you wanted to use a DPP inhibitor, you would select a patient which you don't need too much A1C loading, like maybe 0.5. And if they had renal impairment, you would choose that drug. And if they didn't, you would choose other classes of DPP for inhibitor. In terms of GLP-1s, again, lirotlutide and semaglutide have no dose adjustments uh, for renal impairment. But if you have a person with less than 45 GFR, and you are prescribing bidurian, then you would have to adjust because uh, renal adjustment for less than 45. So th that is one thing is the renal adjustment. The second thing is how much A1C lowering do you need? Do, does the patient have heart failure? 
Does the patient need to have weight loss? Those are all the parameters that you would uh, look at to individualize which drug is better for which patient. Thank you, Dr. D'Souza, for patiently answering my questions. And thank you, everyone, for listening. That concludes our podcast. Thanks for listening to another great ACE podcast. Join us for another episode at aace.com slash podcasts and help us in our mission to elevate clinical endocrinology. Together, we are ACE.